Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. I have the passage for you there on the insert as well. We are in the opening verses of Luke's account of the ministry of Jesus through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. Before ascending into heaven, Jesus told the disciples to return back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the coming Holy Spirit. They were told that the Holy Spirit would come in order to empower them to be his witnesses. In fact, this would be the way the people of God would ever have witness for Christ through the Holy Spirit, so they had to wait for that first coming of the Holy Spirit. As I read this passage, starting at verse 12, I'll read down to verse 26, um, appreciate the details that the writer Luke provides, the names, the numbers, even the, the graphic details about Judas's body. Um, these details contribute to the veracity of the history of what Luke is careful to relay, what he's communicating. With that, hear now God's holy word, starting at verse 12 of Acts chapter 1. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in, in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language a keldima, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, please give us aid by your Holy Spirit in understanding and applying your word. We thank you for this revelation and seek to know you better as a result of spending time 
in your word this day. Lord, much of our lives spent waiting for your guidance and your direction. Lord Jesus, in an ultimate sense, we await the day that you will return. Please give us mindful and sincere attention to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Imagine what an empowering time it would have been seeing Jesus raised from the dead and then over the course of over a month, 40 days, uh, intermittent uh, occasions where he would, he would appear and teach and speak and preach. And he did so to over 500 people over this time. That's not a small amount. That's a huge number of people, uh, more than are in this sanctuary uh, over this course of time uh, so that people could see it's true. Everything that Jesus had taught before, he must have been crystallizing for them and, and bringing back those things. Who, who knows the particulars? It had to be just so rich, though, so intense, so empowering. There had to be a courage growing. Even though there was a sense that they had to hide from people who opposed them, there was also this sense that Jesus was raised again, and he is with us. And so they're being empowered over this course of time. So then when he ascends, there may have been a moment of wondering, but not like before when Jesus said he had to go to die and they were, didn't understand him and they were nervous about it and then they fled. This was different. Now they knew who they were dealing with in fullness. The resurrected Jesus who they watched ascend into heaven and promised that he would send the Spirit so that they would be empowered to be the witnesses that he had designed for them to be. The problem is they didn't know how long it would be from the time he disappeared from them until the Holy Spirit would come. And Jesus told them to do something difficult. He said, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait is not what we like to hear. Wait. It's difficult. It would have been easier for them to scatter, to go to their homes and their places that were their usual stomping grounds. But instead, they're called to go to Jerusalem. They might have felt a little bit vulnerable. I mean, we're kind of sitting ducks. If we're all together, they're going to, authorities will know where we are and there might be a sense of insecurity, but he said, wait. And very typical in the Christian life is this feature of waiting for God's guidance, waiting for his promises to be fulfilled. It's true personally, it's true corporately as a church, and in an ultimate sense, we're in one of those epics. Jesus said he'll return again, he will come again. We believe this, we know he'll come again. So in the meantime, what do we do? What should be our practice? We know we shouldn't be like those who are staring up in the sky. And the angel said, why are you staring up in the sky? There's work to be done. Go be his witnesses. He sent his spirit. We have his spirit. What should we be doing? Well, we see a pattern that uh, emerges in the life of these early Christians throughout the book of Acts. It's not just a one-off here. We'll see it throughout their times of fellowship and, and their times of gathering, their times of witness. And then we see it explained further by Paul in his letters telling Christians of all ages how to act. So what we have here is a bit of a model for us. We can say that. You can't always say that about a historic narrative. It could just be describing something that we recognize. But here they're, they're showing us something of their devotion, of their walk with God that is to be emulated, something that we can see as timeless. The post-ascension disciples that we see here and the company with them, over 120 at this point. They provide a great example for waiting on God's promises in general, and then, of course, ultimately, for when he comes again. How do the disciples spend this time waiting for the fulfillment of Jesus' word about the Holy Spirit? Well, let's look at verse 12, and we see the first thing is they don't scatter and hide. They obey what God tells them to do, what Jesus says. 
they engage, and that's an important word. They don't just, fellowship doesn't just happen. They engage, they participate in fellowship with one another. This is the sharing in life together, starting at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. By the way, that's not far. That's like a 15-minute walk. A Sabbath day journey. They weren't allowed to walk more than a mile. So it's just a way of saying very close very closely uh, connected. Verse 13, and when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. They're together. They're staying together. They're not scattering. Seems like a, a little thing, but it's part of obeying what Jesus told them, and it's important for them to be together in this time, waiting upon God's promises. And think of just the practical reality. Um, if they do scatter, and the Holy Spirit doesn't come right away. They're wondering. You're sitting over there alone in your house, and you're thinking, boy, is the Holy Spirit really going to come? And then as the day, goes, uh, day, day turns to day two, day three, day four, now you're starting to worry about it. When we're together, we take out a lot of that worry one of us may come up with. That's the beauty of coming together in fellowship. Fellowship is important because it's a time to remind each other of the promises of God, to remind each other, Jesus said the Holy Spirit will come. And when one of you says, waver, the rest say, no, remember what the Lord said. Very practical, but very important. They engage in this fellowship. And it identifies for us who was exactly there. This is important because one of the uh, important uh, considerations they have in this waiting period is how to replace Judas. Second part of verse 13. There's Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James. Eleven the 11 remaining disciples are there. And notice the description of the fellowship. This is, this is what is important about this example for us. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's an immediate report of who was in their company and it was showing them not just being together in body, but in heart, one accord, they were unified, devoted to prayer, together. They weren't in harmony before Jesus died. You remember they scattered, Judas betrayed them, uh, Peter fell in his weakness. It was a difficult, now they're unified. The resurrected Jesus has brought them together. The resurrected Jesus has commissioned them and promised he'll send his spirit. Now they're together. Um, it's a beautiful Old Testament covenantal uh, feature of fellowship, to have this unity together. David, who you know and I know experienced a lot of conflict in his life and in his immediate party, his family, his men, um, with an, another king, and so forth. But David was used by the Holy Spirit to pen these important words in Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters, for that matter, dwell together in unity. Uh, the fellowship, that unified oneness that comes from the body of Christ when they're together, this is important for these early Christians, especially waiting on Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Luke loves the Greek word behind together. He uses it ten times in the book of Acts. Um, it's only used a couple other times by other New Testament writers. Um, this word for together or fellowship, uh, we see the, the phrase used in almost about every other chapter of the book of Acts. They lifted their hands together. They were all together. They were of one accord. In fact, Bob Albright always had this terrible joke that we know what car 
the apostles drove because they were in one accord. They prayed with one mind or purpose or impulse. That's what it means to be together. In Romans 15, Paul writing about this very feature, he says for the church, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this unity behind what they're doing, their fellowship and their prayer is key. And it's the fellowship, it's the being together and the practice or the engagement of of this oneness. In 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Share with one another. Give towards one another. Help one another. In Romans 12, 13, seek to show hospitality. This means going out to engage with others, to have fellowship with others. And we see early on they are together and they are of one mind. They're unified. This is why the author of Hebrews writes sometime later, especially under duress, the people of God finding themselves, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what the church is partly for, is the fellowship we have with each other. We need it. I, when you hear someone say, I don't need to go to church, I just, just need to read my Bible, I know they're not really reading their Bible then. Don't listen. When people say, I, I don't need church, I, just, I have me and my Bible, then you're not reading the same Bible because the Bible says go to church. Not go to church, but go to be with the people of God. Be part of the fellowship. Be numbered in the fellowship. That's, that's integral to what it is to be a believer, is to be connected to other believers. In times of waiting, it's good to be with other believers. And we're all in some kind of time of waiting. It could be some personal thing you're waiting upon the Lord for. But all of us are waiting for Jesus to come back. We need to keep getting back together to keep being ready for that. Be ready for what we should do in between, week, in between Sundays and then looking forward to when it is that he comes. Because he will come. In general, the fellowship that we have with one another is maybe the thing that keeps us the strongest because it keeps us in the Word. It keeps us um, partaking of His sacraments. It keeps us praying together as we see here. How do the disciples spend time waiting for the fulfillment of Jesus' Word about the Holy Spirit, His promise? They engaged in fellowship and also look at something else. What did they do in this fellowship? They were unified in persistent prayer. They were in unity together. They weren't just doing uh, nothing. They were careful and they were intentional. Verse 14, all these with one accord, what were they doing? They were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting themselves to prayer. They were careful about it. They practiced it. They, they designated moments to pray. They devoted themselves to the practice of prayer, to the activity of prayer, to praying together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They're together in one accord, unified, praying. They're unified in persistent prayer. We see down in verse 24 and 25, when they're ready to pick that person to take the place of Judas, they pray again and ask God for his guidance. Um, a mark of true unity, by the way, is praying together. You can't say you're unified if you're not praying together because that's really one of the ultimate displays of unity is that we can go before God together. And the reason why this is such a display is it's difficult if you're angry with each other to then, knowing we have this anger harbored in our heart, we're going to then go before the God of the universe who knows our hearts. It says in the passage, God, you know everyone's hearts. So we're careful to pray when we're at odds with one another, which makes us more vigilant about keeping our accounts short with each other, forgiving and forgiving others, giving forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, 
being unified so that we can pray together. Calvin said uh, in observing this passage, two essentials for true prayer are here. Namely, that they persevered, they were regular in it, and they were of one mind. It's hard to pray with people you're angry with. One practice that Sherry and I started when we were married 25 years ago, almost now, um, was to close each day in prayer. There are many days I wish I hadn't done that, honestly, because we just, to do so, we have to make sure we're reconciled. If something has happened during the day and we're irritated or bothered or someone's offended the other, um, we know we're going to pray together, and we have to get that right. And that's good. But there are times where I, I might be stubborn in that. And I know, by accountability, she'll stand there. Like, sometimes she'll go to bed before me. I'll be reading or whatever. And she'll stand there. I know why she's standing there, because we're going to pray. And I know that there's something we've got to work out. And that's, just, that's in a marriage relationship. The people of God. We come to pray together. We should make sure our accounts are clear between each other, right? One of the beauties of communion every week is you get to ask that question again, afresh. Clear conscience, come together and pray. Devote ourselves to prayer. That's what we do while we're waiting for Jesus to come back. That's what they were doing, waiting for this particular promise of Christ, the Holy Spirit. Verse 14 again, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Interestingly, in Acts 2, verse 42, a passage we'll come to not too long from now. It's an important one. It describes the activities of the early church this way. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the scriptures, you could say, and the fellowship, that's communion with each other, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. A lot of people think the breaking of the bread would have also included in that community the Lord's Supper. And in Acts chapter 2, baptism is mentioned. It's all the means of grace they are mentioned in Acts chapter 2. But prayer is one of those. It's one of the ways in which we commune with our Father, and it's one of the ways in which our wills become aligned with God's will. I want you to hear this. This is important. Prayer is a pause in our activity, whatever it may be. It could be formalized when we come together to pray or when you're in your day and you stop and pray. It's a pause in activity, and first and foremost, it's a confession that God is sovereign. I'm only talking to God this way because he can do something about the situation. It's a confession of God's sovereignty. That's the first thing about prayer. Prayer, though, is also an effort on our part to have our wills aligned with God's will. Prayer is not moving the hand of God like some people describe. It's not to unleash God. It's not so that God could work. It's not that, thankfully. Prayer is offering up those things that we think should happen or should be, but we want them to be tested by the will of God, and we want to be corrected accordingly. And it's a win-win for us, because as we pray for God's will, if it be his will, the thing we're praying for, it will come to pass, and we'll praise him for it. If it's not his will, we continue to pray for it, and God will show us over time that it's not, and he'll give our hearts what it needs to accept what his will is, and we'll win there too. That's what prayer is. It's the children coming to the Father for his sovereign will and for our wills to be aligned with it. And he doesn't think anything's dumb to pray about. He wants you to bring it all to him. There's nothing that you should, should hold back. Now, the only standard we see very clearly here is that when they're praying for the replacement of Judas, Peter, we know, goes to the scriptures and checks out what the scripture says. So, 
when you're praying, it's helpful to know the scriptures so you could pray accordingly. But if you're a new believer, you have not yet studied much of the Bible, pray. Seek the scriptures, talk to people who, have, who know the Bible, and pray. And then as you pray, God will reveal his will to you, and it could be as simple as not answering the way you thought or, or having you continue to depend, but you'll know because he'll give you the grace you need by his spirit to accept his will. This is why the practice of prayer is so vital for every individual and for the church. Our shorter catechism does a great job of summarizing the Bible's teaching on prayer. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. Why would we want anything that's not agreeable to his will? Do any of us think that our will would be better than God's? In the name of Christ, so it's through Jesus, with confession of our sins, and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. We come humbly to our Father with these requests. While the disciples and their company waited, they devoted themselves to prayer. They made a point of praying. They made a practice of praying. They were persistent in prayer. And this becomes something that the Apostle Paul mentions often in his letters to the Ephesians. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplications, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In Romans 12, Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. In 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, continue to pray, be in the mindset of prayer. Give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Um, It must have been the case that people would have been familiar with Luke's gospel as well as the book of Acts in that first century. They would know that Luke... In his gospel, he accents one of the parables of Jesus about prayer. And Luke even gives us a bit of a commentary on what that parable meant. It's not always the case. Over 40 parables that Jesus tells, the four gospel writers record them. Some overlap, some are unique to their gospel account. But Luke will sometimes give us a little bit of an extra interpretive edge to what Jesus is saying. Listen to what Luke says in his gospel about prayer. Because I think it helps inform the practice of the church here in the book of Acts. In Luke 18, starting at verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. Paul's, Luke's using this parable of Jesus to show Jesus' meaning that they would not lose heart. They would pray. And this is the parable. It's one of my favorites because of how blunt it is. Jesus said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down with her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what that unrighteous judge said? And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So Luke tells this story, this parable from Jesus. And he says it's so that they would know how always to pray. Now we come to the book of Acts. And here they are praying, devoting themselves to prayer, waiting for Jesus to send the Spirit. And then in verse 24 and verse 25 of our passage, they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. This leads into the last thing that we see them practicing or doing in this time of wait. They're showing their dependence on God's leading. 
the way they are seeking his will. They're praying and seeking the scriptures. They're praying and they're seeking the scriptures. How is this so? Look at verse 15. Luke records a mini-sermon from Peter, and he interrupts the sermon to make a little bit of a parenthetical comment. You'll see that. Verse 15, though. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was, in all, about 120, and said, now pause. This is so Luke. It's so beautiful of Luke. 120, uh, a, a number of scholars note that Jewish law in that day would have said 120 people would make up a community with, that would have its own council. Why is that important? A community with a council, with some official uh, leadership, was a size of a, a people group of that size witnessed all this. This isn't like 10 people making up a story. 120 people saw all this transpire. Uh, a group that would be legal witnesses as a community in themselves saw this happen. So Peter stood up among the brothers, a company of persons, is in all 120, and said, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. That's the part I want you to note. Peter had been reading the scriptures. Peter had been searching over the scriptures about Judas. It had bothered him. It was difficult to cope with Judas' betrayal. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Peter had found in the book of Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 to be exact, He had found the prophecy that helped him understand what God's will was about Judas. It was so hard to understand. And in this case, God reveals it. That's not always the case. There are difficult things we don't understand. We have to just trust God. But in this case, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So they're trying to cope with what happened with Judas en route to finding out who his replacement would be. They're seeking God's guidance. This is one of the things they're doing, waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, seeking God's guidance. That's what we do. We search the scriptures. We pray, God, how would you have us to act? You do it personally, we do it corporately, and we wait for Christ to come again. And we do it every week in a general way as we seek his word, to be prepared. And as we study the scriptures, God will give us peace about what he's doing. Not always particular answer, but peace that he is in control. That he's done these things before, he will do them again, and we can rest in that. Peter and company didn't just sit in silent shock about Judas. They went to the scriptures, and they were praying. Now, I want you to notice this very interesting parenthetical comment. It's, again, it's something that Luke does. Remember, Luke's writing to Theophilus. He's writing to a Greek-Gentile audience. The Greeks would have been aware of the story of Christ's death and resurrection, um, and, but they would have an, a, an angle on it, or there would be some information that would sp- uh, spur their memory on. In verse 18, there was clearly scandal wrapped up in the person of Judas that the Gentiles understood, and there was something about Judas that really would resonate with them. So Luke pauses in the middle of Peter's mini-sermon at the end of this passage, and he says what he says in verse 18 and 19. Look what it says. Now this man acquired a field, talking about Judas, with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle In all his bowels gushed out. Now, if you've seen The Walking Dead, you know what that looks like. If you haven't, you're holier than everyone else, so that's fine. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Verse 19, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a that is, the field of blood. 
Now, what this is referring to is you probably think, wait a minute, Judas hung himself. I know that Matthew says it. He did. But there's a couple possibilities as to what could have happened here. One, Judas bought land over the time of his uh, being with the disciples by pilfering money from them. He was the treasurer. And he had this land. When he killed himself, he went to his land to kill himself. There he hung himself. Now, it could be that, or it could be the money he had received that he threw back at the priest and the high priest for betraying Jesus. Those priests might have known where he killed himself and bought that land off, didn't want that blood money themselves, and that's how Judas was left there. Whatever the case, no one was going to touch him. He was cursed. And they left him hanging there. And at some point, the rope breaks or the decomposition happens like it does, and the picture is right here for us. Falling headlong, he burst in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. No one gave him a proper burial. He was the ultimate betrayer. He was just left there. And people remember that, especially in the Gentile community. Remember that disgusting sight in that story behind that person who was left there like that. Luke just roots it in history. It's local history, but we can imagine what happened. This gives it that much more credibility as he tells his story. Verse 16 again, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. Verse 20, for it is written in the book of Psalms, and this is 69 and 109 that he's quoting, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Part of their devotion to prayer was to seek guidance over the vacancy left after Judas left them. They're praying and they're searching the scriptures to find the answer. And notice what they do. They, they don't just cast lots and say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo." People sometimes try to, to, to cast this situation like that's not it at all. They already narrow it down. And they narrow it down with some very specific criteria for who could possibly be a replacement. And here we have it. This is apostleship. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us, witness to his resurrection. Now, they're all witnesses, but this is an apostolic office. This is a step beyond just a disciple. This is now one who had to witness the full length of Jesus' ministry at some, in some level. But most specifically, the thing that comes up again and again, witnesses to him resurrected. And this is important. And so... There are a handful of those individuals who are around. It already narrows the 120 down to just a few. They come down with two. And they can't decide which one of the two because they're both equally qualified. And even the names given here are rooting these, these men in history, in local history for sure. The people would have known who they, they were. Verse 23. And they put forward two. Joseph called Parsabas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Uh, they weren't just any men. They were men who were known to the company. Uh, they were qualified because they had walked closely with Jesus to the point of seeing him from time to the time of his baptism, from John's hand all the way to his death and resurrection and ascension. And of course, it says in verse 26, they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So based on prayer, based on certain particular standards, eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ, based on the revelation that God had given him. Then they come with two and they cast lots, and Matthias is the one. Um, the casting of lots was something that was done 
often when a decision like this uh, came, it came to the point of there was no way to know which one and either one would have been fine. Proverbs 16.33 says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We are all waiting. We're all waiting for God to do various things in our lives. And as believers, as a church, we're waiting for Jesus to return. In the meantime, we have for us a, a pattern. Started here, we see it throughout the book of Acts, and you see Paul, with regard to all these things, being in one accord, being in fellowship, devoting ourselves to prayer, seeking the scripture. These are not unique just to this episode. It just shows you uh, what uh, the healthy body of Christ is doing in waiting. I'll close with the words of John Stott on this passage. Stott writes, the stage is now set for the day of Pentecost. The apostles have received Christ's commission and seen his ascension. The apostolic team is complete again, ready to be his chosen witnesses. Only one thing is missing. The Spirit has not yet come. So we leave Luke's first chapter of Acts with 120 waiting individuals in Jerusalem, persevering in prayer with one heart and mind, poised and ready to fulfill Christ's command just as soon as he has fulfilled his promise. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what we learned from it, what we have learned from it today. We have been reminded of our need for unified fellowship with one another, and we pray for you now, in accord with this example that we have seen, to send your spirit to us afresh that we might have this kind of unity, that we be overjoyed with the ability to talk to you, our Father, through Christ. Holy Spirit of God, please bolster our unity and devotion. Give us an expectant hope for all that you will do through us until the day when Jesus returns. I pray this in his name. Amen.